Good morning. I have you for 35 minutes. Let's see what damage I can do. Um, I want to talk to you about a fun word this morning. Uh, the word authority, which uh, if you can tell by my predictable sarcasm, uh, fun and authority don't usually go together. In fact, I wonder what you think of this. this is the, just the first thought that comes to your mind when you think of the word um, authority. And I'll just give you a few sort of, I guess they call these memes, but I don't know what they call them, but anyway, that's here they are. So um, so one, one thing uh, that comes to mind normally when people think of authority is just that idea of someone gets elevated over someone else. Uh, superiority kind of goes right along with that word uh, authority, certain people that have power over you, or maybe you have power over certain people. Uh, it's probably actually, you probably have more authority than you realize in the, as this sermon goes on, hopefully you'll, you'll see that. Another way to think of it is just sometimes experts in a certain field have a way of making decisions. Um, they have authority over us that way. Or they just have authority we grant them because we recognize them uh, as experts. Uh, some of you may uh, think of that kind of authority, you know, the... Uh, uh, the parental authority or the, the people that sort of t tell you what to do. They don't let you sort of think for yourself. Maybe because at that age you can't think for yourself. There are all kinds of different versions. But most of these, if you think about these three, they're not necessarily warm, fuzzy, positive understandings of authority. But they're also very common, uh, which is why books like this are written. Uh, and uh, why... Uh, so I'm gonna. It's a bestseller. I just wrote. It's out on the. We'll be selling it at the end of the service. But uh, the just the idea that we should question authority on on every front, you know. And and for the most part, authority's had a really bad name because we all know that authority's been abused, right? Um, and just kind of a side note, it's always interesting to me that there are groups that uh, are under authorities that are not being helpful, and they want to take away authority from that group. They want to get it for themselves. And they always assume that when they get authority, they'll be much more gracious in giving it away. Uh, but uh, it doesn't usually work that way. Uh, today, I want to take this idea of authority and apply it to this series that we've been going through in um, this month of August. This phrase in Ephesians that says, Christ loved the church and he gave himself up for her. And certainly whatever Christ loves, we followers of Christ want to love that too. Whatever Christ does, we want to mimic that. So this pattern, this description of Christ is meant to be a, sort of to be laid over on, on us. It's, it's meant to describe us as well. We talked a couple of weeks ago about the center. Uh, the church has a center. In this case, it's the gospel message that's brought out in Ephesians chapter 1. It's a gospel message that centers around the exalted Christ. Uh, Kathy and I just watched yesterday this uh, memorial service for Tim Keller. Some of you don't know who he is, but he's a fair, fairly well-known pastor who died recently uh, and has written several significant books. Um, but what we found fascinating about this service is that uh, there was hardly a single mention of Tim Keller in the entire service. Uh, it was all about Christ from almost beginning to end. You'd have to hunt to even find anything about uh, the man Tim Keller and so here is the exalted Christ around which his followers gladly gather and give him all the spotlight 
And we aren't just followers in the sense of we're actually disciples. That's the word that's used the most for, for Christians in the Bible. In other words, we are people committed to a lifelong apprenticeship and understanding our master and mastering his message. Uh, so that's, that's the center of the church. Last week, we looked at the idea of her witness. We are together. Uh, our witness is who we are together and how that overflows out of us in our works and our ways. And uh, we saw in Ephesians chapter 2 that Christ is our peace. Because we have this, uh, this uh, vertical peace with God, every, uh, every disciple of Christ is someone who has surrendered themselves to Jesus. So the church really is a democracy of sinners. Uh, no one is above and below one another. We're all sinners at the same level at the cross. Uh, and uh, we have... The hostility between God and us has been removed because of Jesus' perfect life. He lived a perfect life that we never could. He died a brutal death on our behalf. He was sacrificed for our sins. And so uh, we have this vertical peace with God, which enables us to have horizontal peace with all kinds of people, even our enemies. So the church is a place where horizontal hostility comes to die. Uh, this is a place of great peace because we are at peace with God. There are two things that go together in a disciple of Christ that, that do not fit in any other human category at all. Two things that can normally never coexist if it wasn't for Christ, and that is royalty and great humility. God takes sinners and turns them into royalty, highly privileged people, but because they realize it's all because of God, they have great humility. Great humility with great royalty come together. And that's who we are as a people. And out of that witness of what we are together, we, it overflows into witness on the outside. And of course, today, uh, we want to talk about this subject of authority. That Jesus is the head and we are the body. So if you have a Bible, look at uh, the very end of Ephesians chapter 1. Though most of our time will be in chapter 4, in just a few verses in chapter 4, and all those verses are in your bulletin if you don't have a Bible with you. But the first mention in the book of Ephesians, this beautiful book that's all about the church, is in verse 22 of Ephesians chapter 1, where we're told that God put all things under his feet, under Jesus' feet, and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. So clearly in this first verse here, we see that uh, Jesus is the head of the church. And, and, and we need to think of head here as like the head of a government, not just sort of figurehead, uh, symbolic figurehead, but actually the head of a government. Uh, after all, we all see that every year at Christmas, the verse from Isaiah chapter 9 uh, a child is given to them. A son is given to them. And what does it say of this child? It says the government will rest upon his shoulders. Believe me, it wasn't exciting that a baby was born. That wasn't the exciting thing that Isaiah was telling people years and years before Jesus came. It was the fact that a king was born, a baby who would rule. We don't just want a baby. We want a baby who will reign. And so that's why it speaks about the government will rest upon his shoulder. And, uh, and there will be no end to the increase of that particular child's government. So in other words, 
the first thing we discover is that the church is not a democracy. Yes, it's a democracy of sinners, but the church is not a democracy. It ought not to operate like a democracy. Uh, in a democracy, the majority have authority. It's an illusion to think that everyone has authority in a democracy. It's the majority that have authority in a democracy. And uh, the church is not based upon a majority vote. It's based, uh, the, the church is actually a monarchy. Only one has all authority in the church. His name is Jesus, and he is the head. In fact, if I had to say it today, it's probably uh, more accurate to say that this is a description of the, uh, perhaps the church today. Uh, in those days, there was no ultimate authority in Israel. And so everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Which, by the way, in our typical culture, that would be a good thing. Oh, thankfully, no king. Everybody is a king. We call that anarchy, in case you're wondering what that is. Uh, when everyone does what was right in their own eyes, you cannot have a peaceful coexistence that way. Um, but instead, what we see here in Ephesians chapter 4, especially where we're going to see this a little bit more in verses 11 through 16, is we need to understand how this democracy actually uh, operates. And so I want to read to you verses 11 through 16, and then we'll go over them in a little more detail. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 11 says that, Jesus, that's the who the he refers to there, he gave to the church apostles, prophets, evangelists, shepherds, and teachers. And he gave these people with these gifts for a purpose, verse 12, to equip the saints to do what? Well, for the work of ministry, which is what? The building up of the body of Christ. And what does that look like? Well, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God, to a mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. So, the, so in this whole idea here, what we have is this authoritative head. I'm going to explain a little bit more about this. He sends truth, which is the idea of practiced knowledge, to the body through these delegated representatives that he has. And the body responds in submission to those authorities, and as a result... The whole body grows. That's the setup that in this monarchy that Jesus has established here. So notice, first of all, verse 11, uh, these gifted individuals, what do they all have in common? What's common about apostles, prophets, evangelists, shepherds, and teachers? Well, they're all using the exact same tool to accomplish a purpose. They're actually all using the word of God. They're all using the word of God to equip the people of God in some form or another. They're they're communicating it, uh, they're mentors of it, they're explainers of it, they're defenders of it in all different kind of ways. And then notice in verse 12, the church isn't a seminary, it's not like a great big learning center. The church is a construction project, we're actually building something. We are building uh, the body of Christ. That's why in our small groups we talk about trying to make our small groups, which by the way I would say are the heart of this church, not Sunday morning, about the small groups are, and these are the places where we're doing disciple making, and these are the places where we're emphasizing the importance of being on mission in our world. In a sense, these are the groups where we get tighter and brighter. That's the idea in these small groups. And so uh, that's part of what we do to build this body of Christ, this construction project. And notice verse 13 speaks about who we're becoming. 
This is a description. This is like a growth chart for kids and with different measurements as they get older and over. Until we all attain to the, to the what? The unity of two things, the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God. Interestingly, in the Bible, this idea of doctrine, in other words, not just what we believe, like reciting things like the New City Catechism, the Lord's Prayer today. Again, it's not about just knowing the right thing. It's actually about practicing our beliefs. We're all about people that actually exercise faith in what we know. If we don't exercise faith, it's just information. But the knowledge, this experiential knowledge, of we get to know Christ better and better, and we get to trust him better and better. So those two phrases, the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God, this is what maturity looks like. We are people who are practicing this, these beliefs that we recite on a regular basis. But I want you to notice that what doctrine does, it binds people, it matures people, and it stabilizes people. I know that there's a part of you who've been around the block for a while and you're saying, no, doctrine actually divides people. By the way, here's just an interesting footnote. There was a time when churches split over doctrine. Today they don't split over that, they split over cultural issues. But that's a whole other set of sermons for another day. Um, maybe we'll do that when we get into Genesis. But, uh, but it seems like historically doctrine always divides, but that's not what it says here. Notice what the opposite of verse 13 is, verse 14, so that we may no longer be children. In other words, without doctrine, we will be tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Let me put it this way. Uh, you're either... Uh, you're either under the chaos and deception of what's trendy or you're anchored in the gospel, which is stabilizing, maturing, uniting. And by the way, also notice something else in verse 14. What's the, what is it that they're tossed and carried about by? Every wind of doctrine. Do you see how they're using doctrine in verse 14? Doctrine just isn't something used inside of the church. What Paul is saying here is that everybody believes in doctrine, if you think about it. Everybody has a belief system, right? It's not just the church that has its creeds and its catechisms. Everybody has some doctrine that rules them, some, something that they, they uh, believe in and give their life to. And so he's simply saying the doctrine that in verse 13 that unites around Christ is the kind that binds, matures, and stabilizes us. So we have this authoritative head. Jesus Christ, he sends truth to us through these delegated authorities. That's the evangelists, the shepherds, the teachers. The church responds to that in submission, and as a result, all of us grow. That's the system of authority that has been set up. But there's four things that need to be said about this authority, uh, and that's really what the rest of this message is about. Four things that sort of put this authority in, in its right perspective. The authority of Jesus is not experienced like the authority of the world. Authority is a good word in the church. Um, because the authority in the church is a serving authority. Uh, Jesus came to serve, not to be served. Uh, it's an authority that serves, and it's an authority that serves at great cost to the one who has authority. 
That's the, that's the uh, constant tone of scripture. Let me just give you one example. Mark chapter 10. Jesus' disciples come to him at one point asking about the authority that they anticipate receiving when he becomes king. And they say something that you and I would probably say in, the, in, in, uh, in a similar vein. And Jesus called them to him and he said, um, after they're, they're squabbling over who's going to have the most authority in the kingdom, he says to them in Mark chapter 10, verse 42, you know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles, they lord it over them and their great ones exercise authority over them. In other words, you know that this is how authority is used in the world, he says to his disciples. And they all nod their head and say, yeah, please give us some. Uh, but it shall not be that way among you, he says. Whoever would be great, whoever would have much authority, must be your servant. Whoever wants to be first must make himself a slave of all. Because even the one who has ultimate authority, the Son of Man, did not come to be served, but to serve. And not just serve, but serve to the point of giving his life a ransom for many. Now, with that in mind, I want you to read something in Ephesians with me. Ephesians 5, verse 22 a verse that we're inclined to never read in churches lest we lose our heads. Here it is, verse 22 of chapter 5. Wives, submit to your own husbands as if you're submitting to the Lord. Whoa. For the husband is the head of the wife. What? Yep. Even as Christ is the head of the church, his body and is himself its savior. So if the church submits to Christ, wives should also submit in everything to their husbands. And then it goes on to talk about how husbands are to use that authority. So they love their wife as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Let me just say this as clear and as unapologetically as possible. It has always been the truth of Scripture. It always will be the truth of Scripture. That God, in his great wisdom, made men the head of the home and the head of the church. So be it. Now, if you're automatically going dot, 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 you mean because men are better? Nope. He could have made whoever he wanted to. It's his call. I don't know why he made men. It's not because he wired them necessarily. There's a lot of other reasons. We're always trying to justify why God made that decision. He just made it. Okay, let's not spend a whole lot of time figuring out why. He just did. But let's start and think about what that means. That is not a position of superiority. It is a position of responsibility. It's not leadership by influence, and it's not leadership by right. It's leadership by sacrificial service. Listen to these qualities that Laura read for us from 1 Timothy 3. An elder, the, uh, a man who's appointed as, as one of the leaders in a church. I have no more authority than any other elder in this church. He's to be the husband of one wife. That doesn't mean, by the way, that an elder has to be a husband. It just means uh, probably a better translation is if he's married, he's a one-woman man. That's the idea there. Uh, he's sober-minded. Uh, he's self-controlled. He's respectable, hospitable, able to teach. You can see, I want you to see a pattern in all of these bullet points. They're stated negatively because this is a leader who's extremely aware of his vulnerabilities. 
He's vulnerable to love of money. He's vulnerable to being quarrelsome. He's vulnerable to being violent. He's aware of his vulnerabilities, and he owns them. That's what it means to be above reproach, to be blameless. It's often a list when I've gone through it with some guys and asked them to consider being an elder. They've said, well, I don't qualify, to which I want to say, I get it. None of us really feel like we fit into that category. We're not looking for perfect men. We're looking for men who are aware that they're not perfect and who very much own that. It's called humility. It's called, Lord, lead me this day, not into temptation, right? Uh, so that's the picture here in 1 Timothy 3, 1 Timothy 3. And so what I would say is when you think about what it means to be the head, would that God would put more heads over us like this. Would that God would put more Jesus-like heads over us who are willing to give their entire lives for our holy benefit at whatever cost to them it takes. That's what headship means in the New Testament. So that kind of authority is very different than the kind of, the, of authority the world sees. Secondly, we're all to, we all wind up submitting to some authority. This, uh, this idiotic notion that we can somehow be totally ourselves, you be you, uh, we can be freed from oppressive authorities, we can blossom and flourish in our own uh, self-expressive individualism and autonomy. Honestly, I think if you're clear-headed for a few moments, you'll see the folly in that. I, I appreciate what Romans chapter 6 does when it describes human beings as enslaved all human beings are enslaved to one of two things there are no other options we are either enslaved to sin all these desires in us that we can't control or we are enslaved to righteousness now you can think of slavery as a bad term and it does have a lot of bad connotations to it so if you don't use slavery just think of it this way all of us are like two-year-old kids behind the wheel of a car. We need an authority. And we're either going to be authority to our own folly, or we're going to be under the authority of someone who knows what's best for us and cares for us and loves us. And someone has said, I just heard it this week, the most dangerous authorities are the undetected ones. So here, let me ask you this question. Who disciples you? It's another way of saying, when I say we all submit to some authority, another way of saying it is, we are all discipled by someone or something. What is it for you? Is it your career, your possessions, what you do and what you have? Is it recreation, what you live for, the fun you live for, the escape that you live for? Is it family? By family, I mean that in the broadest sense of the word. People that you live for their approval, are you people that you want to comply to your approval? Is it teachers, those online sources that make you feel like you really know what's happening in the world? <laughs> you know, those sources that make you feel smarter than you actually are? Because all of your knowledge is mostly from research? You've never really gotten out of your silo and experienced the real world? Or let's flip it the other way. Maybe the, what disciples you is your life experiences that have had a profound impact on you that feel more true than facts. Who disciples you? And are they competing with Jesus as your ultimate authority to disciple you? 
Here's the way you can find out. Invite those that God has appointed in his church, those people with gifted skills in the word, invite them to examine who is discipling you. Put yourself under that, their scrutiny and their light for a while and let them kind of take a look inside of your life. I've realized recently that I've had to back off from certain sources that I listen to. Even good sources, websites that I've recommended from this pulpit many times before, I've even had to back off from them because they provoke righteous anger in me that very quickly becomes unrighteous anger. I've also discovered that... Um, I can get caught up in a dream that I'm living for. I can get caught up in a task that I'm living for. And I can interpret every interruption to that, every delay of that, as, a, as something that is so wrong and needs to be fixed now. Instead of stopping and thinking, maybe the Lord is saying, Rick, would you just take a breath? Or maybe he's saying something even more profound. Maybe he's saying, did you know that that's not my will for you? And maybe you need to give it up entirely. So we need to re be aware of these authorities that disciple us. And thirdly, disciples mature by how authority speaks. Look at chapter 4, uh, verse 15. Rather, if you really want to grow, we should be speaking the truth in love. We should be speaking the truth in love. There's another version of this in verse 29 of chapter 4. It's actually much more uh, detailed. It says, let, let no corrupting talk come out of your mouth, but this is the kind of talk that should come out of your mouth, the kind of talk that builds someone up. And not just the kind of talk that builds someone up, but the kind of talk that fits the occasion. So that assumes that you actually need to know what's going on with uh, the person there because you want to make sure it fits the occasion so that it can give grace to those who hear I've I don't know when I came across this it was several years ago but uh, before you can tell someone to do something you actually have to speak to them first right you have to first tell them what to do before you can speak to them you need to love them and before you love them, you actually need to know them to even know how to love them. By the way, I'll give credit to this. This is the beauty of biblical counseling, some, uh, which is a big emphasis in this church. But this is the kind of insight it sheds on something like Ephesians 4.15. If you think about it, Ephesians 4.15, if you only have that, speak the truth in love, you know, off you go. Well, wait a second. I know you mean well, but hold on a second. Are you really knowing this person? Speaking the truth to someone else can be very risky, right? Uh, <laughs> I, uh, I, I kid you guys sometimes about these manila folders I have of each one of you, of diff different things about you, and uh, you'd be surprised how many of us have the emperor's has no clothes on problem. In other words, we have a blind spot that everybody else in the church can see, but no one's telling us about it. Uh, and, um, and so... Jumping into that is like, it's like asking someone, hey, let's go for a dive in a thorn bush. Uh, I can only think of that Monty Python kind of line, run away, run away. You know, it's like that. Who wants to do that? You know, um, and so it's easy sometimes when you're halfway decent at confronting people to just drop a bomb. I did my job before the Lord now deal with it. And then you walk away. 
Uh, I had to do that this week to someone, by the way. I was not looking forward to that. Uh, but I've learned the hard way that you have to start, start by first checking for a log in your own eye. Then you have to try to get into their skin. You got to get to know them. You got to pray over the situation. You got to wait and you got to watch and then you repeat. You got to get to know them. You got to pray over the situation. You got to wait and then you got to watch until finally the Lord gives a little crack and you know just the right word of grace to get in there so that they can possibly begin to see something that only you see. So speaking the truth like that is very risky. Now, I want you to know for some of you, you, you will never go there. You will never say what you know you need to say. But there's another way about speaking the truth in the love that I don't consider risky. I consider it awkward. See, for me, it's actually easier to confront people, to tell them things that they might just, you know, swing at you afterwards. Do you know what's really, really hard for me? Is when speaking the truth is awkward and you have to say something nice to someone. I know that sounds stupid for some of you who are good at it. Uh, but for me, that's especially other men, that's always been an, you know, a difficult thing. It was always more difficult for my sons than it was uh, for my daughters. But um, truth has this ability. Um, what you're doing with truth is you're exposing people's blind spots. And when I say you're exposing their blind spots, I don't mean about just things where they need to do work. You also are exposing their blind spots where God is actually working and they're not even aware of it. And it would be so encouraging for them to see that. I find that much more awkward than this one. And both of these are speaking the truth in love, revealing people's uh, evidences of graces, are connecting with them with, when your heart hurts with their heart. You know, to weep with those who weep. That's another way of speaking the truth in love. So... We mature, the, what I'm getting at in this whole thing is we mature by speaking authority. But it's how we speak authority that actually matters as much as the authority. And then lastly, the last point here is this. Disciples mature by our bonding dependence upon authority. Now, I want, you to, I want to tell you something that's kind of stupid about preaching I can sometimes sit for 15 or 20 minutes on one simple phrase and think, I just don't like that. There's got to be a better way to say that. And that number four, uh, it never made it past point one. After 20 minutes, I said, oh, well, that's as good as I can get. So there's got to be a better way of saying that. But I got that from verse 16. From whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. There's this organic dependence upon one another in this local church. Uh, we are much more of an organism than we are an organization. So today, Kathy was running around uh, putting trash bags in places because the cleaning crew didn't quite... Uh, didn't quite do the job this week. And so um, it would have been easy for me as an organizational head to think, uh, off with their heads, let's just destroy those people. Um, uh, there's a lot more behind that story, by the way, in case you're wondering, wow, what's wrong with him? Uh, but I had to remember what I was saying today. You know, it's going to be messy here on an organizational level because we're a family, we're an organism. And that's far more important than our organizational efficiency. 
We are all needy people. And you know what we need? We need the reign of King Jesus to take over every single fabric of our being. And I need every one of you, and you need me as much as I need you in order for that to happen. We're all needy, and we all need one another. And no one is here by accident. We're all receivers. We're all contributors. I'll tell you the story about a couple that came to our church when we were in Portland, Oregon. And um, we were a pretty, what I would call, homogenous church, you know. You could pick anyone out of the 500 people in that church, and we were all exactly the same, pretty much. Uh, this couple came in. He was a sax player in a fairly famous band. And she was from Puerto Rico, and she was loud and wonderful. Uh, and man, did they not fit. Uh, I just remember thinking, this is the best thing that ever happened to this body. Man, it was just like the suit finally got some jalapeno in it. I mean, it just, it just is a beautiful picture of what God has done in the world. But they didn't last. After two or three years, it was just so difficult for them to feel so alone. And it happens a lot, and it's sad that it does. But at least it reminds me that when God brings people here that we think sometimes don't fit, they probably fit better than we realize. Uh, and, uh, and that was a beautiful story. So... All this is leading really to this one conclusion that I did want to say at the beginning because it probably seems a little too much, but I hope you see this from the argument from Ephesians. Our allegiance to Christ is proven by our allegiance to one another in his body, the local church. That should be a fairly straightforward, simple statement, but it can almost seem to be a little over the top for people when you hear that. And so if you're not careful in a local church, your allegiance isn't to Christ, it's to something in the church. It's an allegiance to a program, and as long as that program is there, your allegiance is there. It's an allegiance to a preacher, our leadership, and as long as that's there, your allegiance is there. It's an allegiance to certain people, maybe in contra to the leadership that you can't stand. As long as those relationships are there, your allegiance is there. Or to a certain experience that you're having. And this is a hard thing to hear, but it's so needed to hear. Our allegiance to a local church, unless that local church really is deviating from the gospel, the center itself, needs to be to Christ. Otherwise, if I'm the head of my wife, and as soon as my experience with her goes south, I decide to check out. That's going to be a really difficult marriage to sustain. Now, I want to say one last thing that I hope will be a helpful application. When we come into this service, we actually have rituals that, the, uh, uh, that remind us that Christ is our head at the very beginning of the service, the call to worship, and communion. I want to explain what those are. But first, I want to have the worship team come forward and the guys serving communion. And as I like to say... If you're here visiting with us, this table is the table of Jesus Christ and uh, everyone who is a disciple of Christ, everyone who's realized they're part of that democracy of sinners and has given their life to Christ, this is for you. And you come and you enjoy the body and blood of Christ with us. Uh, and uh, we'll come down the center aisle, we'll take bread and cup, uh, and I'll lead us in taking it all together in just a moment.
But I want to say something about this little ritual we do at the very beginning of our service. You saw Jeff get up today and do it. And I, uh, I appreciated, by the way, there you are, Jeff. Uh, I appreciated your emphasis on uh, we're, in, we're making that transition to the vertical this morning. So let me just repeat, I didn't set Jeff up for that. It's almost like someone else set him up for that. Um, <clears throat> but our call to assurance, or our call to worship has two pieces to it. Uh, we, we confess our sins and the assurance of pardon. It's like, it's this practice of whenever you get up in the morning and you want to meet the Lord, it's a normal thing, right? You ought to just have a moment of repentance and a moment of rejoicing. Lord, here I am. I'm filthy again. I know you don't ever get tired of washing my feet. I rejoice in your forgiveness and your promise to take care of me today. That's simple. And so we have this call to worship where we recognize we're sinners and we rejoice that our sin is not who we are. Now, what also happens, though, at the beginning of our service is people come in focused on the horizontal, not the vertical, which is okay. Hold on a second. I'm about to say some things that are going to make some of you feel a little guilty. That's not my intent here, but just give me a moment, okay? When we come in, we are focused in on the horizontal, either how God has been blessing us this week or, or we're talking to other people uh, or some people come in without you realizing it, I'm sure, and they're on the outside, they're being polite and nice, but man, they are struggling and hurting and hardly wanting to be here, but thankfully they're here. So some people come in with sort of disguised trials and other people come in happy and talkative and ready to interact which is all great. I don't want to in any way say one negative thing about that. But there comes a moment in the call to worship when we're meant to transition from the horizontal and go completely 100% of our attention on the vertical. That's the call to worship. Now, practically speaking, right now the call to worship is like background music to let you know, hey, we're getting underway. Whenever it works out, come on and join us. Maybe it's halfway through the second song. A little bit of sarcasm, not a lot. <laughs> what I want to encourage you to do on behalf of the elders, we've talked about this off and on. Could we possibly over the next several months start training our congregation to take a moment and be still before the Lord? To remember that if it wasn't for him, you wouldn't even be here. To remember his worth, and it's wonder. And I think what will help is two things. They both start with the word C. Clock and conversations. We start our worship service. I don't know if you knew this. We, starting in about a few weeks. Right now it starts at 10.15. But in a few weeks it starts at 10.45. Not 10.55. So that means that we might have elders and some security people pushing you in at around 10.40. And, uh, and you'll gladly obey them because that's the kind of people you are. But again, all of this is for the purpose of trying to get here, which also means maybe you need to start thinking about coming into the presence of God Saturday night so that you can be here on time, so that we can be here. And so when that call to worship comes, God has our full attention. The God of all worthiness and the God of all wonder. After all, last week, we read this in Hebrews chapter 12. It says this uh, in verse 22, 
What you're coming to on Sunday morning is Mount Zion, the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. There are angels gathering for a festival right now. There are people who've already died and are with the Lord watching over us. They're enrolled in heaven. The God, the judge of all is here. The spirits of the righteous made perfect. Jesus is here, the mediator of the covenant. I know you can't see that, but all that is happening in a local church as it gathers. So just a picture uh, in your mind. And finally, communion. Uh, Even though this is a table that reminds us of the sacrifice, this is also an altar where the Lamb of God was sacrificed. And because he's risen, that altar is now a throne. And King Jesus reigns from that throne. He's the king who used his supreme authority to willingly become the Lamb of God, to be broken and spilled out for all of us. He's also the king who nourishes us today with his body and blood for yet one more week closer to home. And so even physically as we come to take a bread and cup, we come every Sunday We end our service gladly bowing before the ultimate authority over us and gladly pledging our allegiance to him. So let's take a moment, pray. I'll pray for us and then you come. Before, where there was even a molecule floating around, you, our Father, chose us to be yours forever. And then you sent your Son to live the perfect life we never could, to die a death swallowing up all of our sin that our death could never atone for. And then you raised him. And he said to us, it's better that I go away, that I come back to you again, and you indwell us now with your spirit. So Father, Son, and Spirit, our needed authority over us, we gladly bow and submit our total selves to you now in Jesus' name.